morning, everyone. Um, also, uh, tomorrow night we have men's fellowship. So, yeah, excited for that. Uh, and our theme uh, for tomorrow night's discussion, yes, I have a knife and I'm adjusting my microphone with it. Um, and I'll cut you if you come close to me. Um, but our theme for tomorrow night is the true nature of freedom. So even if you didn't have time to read, you don't have the book yet, you can come out and still discuss with us. So with all that, if it's your first time at Refuge, welcome. Um, we are actually going to take a break from uh, our current series that we've been doing, which is uh, dealing with difficult um, passages of scripture. We were calling it the God I don't understand. And we're going to break from that. And we're going to do a, a sh- short series on the symbols of Christ. We'll look at the water. We'll look at the meal, the cross, and the grave. And uh, some of you observe Lent uh, as a preparation for your heart to re- realign um, just your, your heart and your mind with the work of Jesus and the re- resurrection life he brings. Uh, so also, as a community of believers, it's really, I think, important for us that we can set time aside to consider um, the work of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection for us, and, and really what that means for us as individuals, what that means for us as a community, what it means to walk in resurrection life. Uh, and so we're going to be taking the next four weeks to, to do that um, so that we as a church that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus for all it's worth in everyday living. Um, So, uh, in our Christian tradition, we don't really think much of symbols or sacraments. And what I mean by that is that they don't have the same depth of meaning for us uh, in the sense of their weight and importance. Uh, They're more like options rather than obligations, right? So it's like, have you been baptized it's optional, you know, kind of the way we think about it. You know, oh, did you take communion? It's kind of an option, and we don't see them necessarily as these obligations, things that we are compelled to do, uh, things that we are to do um, to remember, to celebrate. Um, and, and this is kind of a foreign idea for us, symbols and sacraments and signs. And, of course, for maybe the church at large, um, Symbols and sacraments and signs, um, they carry a great depth of meaning. So if you've ever been to an Orthodox church or a Catholic service, right, the, the, the Eucharist, is, it, there's great weight behind it. And if you aren't a part of that parish, you can't even take communion, right? So uh, with, with evangelicalism, it, it's, sometimes it's more loose. Uh, now, of course, we have our own cultural symbols that carry meaning for us. I mean, you just think about the American flag, uh, right? Like, you see the American flag, you're at a baseball game, a football game, or, you know, basketball game, whatever, and they bring it up, and what does everybody do? Everybody stands at their feet, everybody puts their hand over their heart. And this, there's a symbol that speaks of patriotism, that speaks of loyalty. It conjures up all these sorts of emotions and ideas. Uh, maybe it's your team logo, uh, you know, you're an A's fan, you're a Giants fan, you're a Warriors fan. It might be one of those things that just conjures up loyalty and excitement, all these things. Uh, for others, it might be your alma mater, right? Where you went to school, there's a lot of pride in that. There's a lot of meaning behind that. Uh, there's embedded memories, and they conjure up deep emotion for you. Um, and so, in some sense, we get the idea behind symbols. But when we think about it, again... The symbols and sacraments maybe of Scripture don't have that same depth or meaning for us. 
Now, most Christians know that Jesus himself gave us two sacraments or symbols to observe. They are baptism and the Eucharist or the meal. So what is a sacrament? Keep using that word, right? So a sacrament is a Christian rite that is believed to have been ordained by Jesus Christ and that is held to be a means of divine grace or to be a sign or symbol of a spiritual reality. Now, I was thinking about this. The Bible is filled with metaphor, imagery, symbols, and signs. Um, And as we're going through the year of biblical literacy, you've come across many of these. I'll just list a few. Yahweh is a rock. The name of Yahweh is a strong tower that the righteous can run into and be saved or safe. Those who hope in Yahweh will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Here's another one. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me bears much fruit. C.S. Lewis, in, in one of his essays, he talks about how God does not look at the world around us and think, okay, how, how can I relate to humans? Uh, I'm, like a, I'm like a father. Okay, that's a, good, that's a good one. you know. Or I'm like a farmer. But he said God actually creates the world in such a way that he can relate to us. So God made fathers to be a picture, a sign, a symbol of what God's heart is like towards us, what his uh, care uh, can be like for us. God made seed, and he made harvest, and he made seasons so that we can understand life and aspects of life that maybe that they are windows, they're pictures so that we can understand um, Deep messages from God. So God, through these metaphors, symbols, signs, and word pictures, wants to, I believe, change the way that we look at the world. God wants to speak to us through Scripture, of course, we know that. But he also wants to speak the truths of Scripture seen in the world around us. He wants us to hear his word all around us and to think and see the the way that the biblical writers do. When you look at the skies, whether night or day, the psalmist says, the heavens proclaim the glory of God, and the earth shows his artistry. You know, the psalmist and the other biblical writers, they saw a world alive with the presence of God. They saw his power, they saw his handiwork everywhere they looked. And they celebrated that, and they, and they, they knew that it, it spoke about his presence being among them. And, and it's a, you know, I was thinking about this this week, it's a beautiful and mysterious thing that God gives us physical things to relate to us by and to minister to our souls. And he's calling to us through them. And, and this is kind of where I want to go with this series, is this idea that Every single day you interact with and come into contact with signs and symbols, metaphors, pictures, ways, windows into the spiritual reality, and God wants to speak to you through these things. Now, this year of biblical literacy, many of us are giving time each day to read through Scripture, but what about the times that we're not doing that? You know, and sometimes we only view spirituality in that dualistic sense, right? It's like, well, this is my time for God, and then the rest of it I'm just doing, you know, the devil's work or whatever, you know, building bricks for Pharaoh. I'm, you know, just having to do what I have to do, right? And that's actually not the way the biblical writers view the world, and it's not the way that we as Christians are to view the world. This is, the hymn writer says, my father's world. 
The birds their carols raise, the morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. And this world is alive with the presence and the glory of God. And God has given us these things so that we can commune with him, that we can be ministered to by him through these things. And so I hope as we talk through some of the stuff, these will become for us prophetic whispers telling us about our God, telling us his story telling us his promises to us to bring deeper understanding and connection to the story of God and to incite deeper trust, deeper hope, and deeper love. And this is what poetry does, right? It's, it, and specifically what the Psalms and the prophets do. They don't simply tell us about God, but they tell us in such a way, they paint a picture that we might have a personal experience with the God of the universe, that we might have a personal experience with our Abba Father, And so God wants, I believe, to speak to us, church, in the ordinary, through imagery and symbols, because the ordinary is where real life is happening. And he wants to use his creation and our daily rhythms in it to bring about spiritual formation, to bring about greater faith, to bring about greater hope, and to bring about greater love. Uh, Tish Warren, uh, Harrison Warren, uh, wrote a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary. It's a beautiful book. I highly recommend it. But she says this, The kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. It's probably not the way we normally think about spirituality. But remember, Jesus Christ, or the, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity became the man, Jesus of Nazareth. He walked among us in the quiet, in the repetitive, and in the ordinary. And it did not taint him. It did not make him less than. Uh, And so these are places that we can find true spiritual life uh, in these disciplines. So all that to say, this morning, this is what I want to do. I want to change the way you look at and think about water. Sound good? You guys open to that? And so I want to give you a a water as a part of a daily liturgy. Okay, so here we go. Water is something that is so common to life and to the survival of the human race. Water, uh, the world is covered in it, right? 70% at least. Uh, Your body is mostly water, 60%. You use water every day. We use it to grow things. Um, We use it to wash and cleanse our food. We use it to wash and cleanse our body. We uh, use it to give life to our physical bodies. We we also do a lot of playing in water, right? That's something that we really enjoy doing, splashing, turning on the sprinklers, going to water parks, going to the ocean, the lake. You know, we have water sports. And and this is uh, a most common part of daily life. And I believe that God wants to speak to us through these things. And, and, And so I'm asking that you be open to that. So let's talk about water, right? Um, So the metaphor of water is used in three main ways in Scripture. First, you have uh, this metaphor of life. Uh, Water is life-giving. It always speaks of life. Secondly, you have this idea of cleansing, specifically for being dedicated to God. And then lastly, you have this picture of judgment or death uh, that is associated with water. And these are, 
I mean, those are pretty varied in metaphor, but let's talk about that. So life, for ancient Jews, water played the significant role, of course, because they lived in a dry and arid uh, place. The Near East is uh, a place where there is not a whole lot of water. Uh, and so anytime you find you know, a place like the Jordan River is significant because it is living, flowing, life-giving water. And the Bible celebrates this kind of water all the time. And when it does, it often speaks on a personal level of abundance or fulfillment. It speaks of being life-giving or a blessing. And so the Bible uses this again and again, this picture of water that brings refreshment to our physical bodies, but also in a spiritual sense brings refreshment to our souls. The second metaphor that's used in Scripture is cleansing. And so water, you guys have been reading all this in Leviticus and other passages, right? Water played a significant role in cleanliness or purity. It wasn't just about washing food, but also the Jews would wash their bodies, these ceremonial washings and bathings that would signify that they were clean from sin or from impurity, and they were dedicated, they were clean for God, dedicated to his service, And the scripture used all sorts of metaphors for this. Uh, The Red Sea and the Jordan crossings become pictures of this. As Israel passes through the sea, they are cleansed and dedicated to Yahweh. In Joshua, we have a new generation of Israelites who doesn't, uh, excuse me, who did not uh, experience the passing through the waters of the Red Sea. And so they pass through the water of the Jordan. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. And this is seen as an act of cleansing And they are rededicated to Yahweh as they enter into the land of promise. And then, of course, as we read through the Levitical cleanliness codes, where the Levitical priest would do these ceremonial washings. And if you, you know, a woman was on her period, she would have to do these washings. If you touched a dead body, you would have to do washings. If you touched an unclean animal, you have to do these washings. And all of this signified Purity and uncleanness or spiritual filth and spiritual purity or holiness. And the idea constantly in scripture is that we need to be cleansed from the past and we need to be rededicated to Yahweh. Now, last one, and then I'll try to begin to tie all this together. And this is one that's most interesting to me. So there's a whole nother metaphor for water that's just on the far end of the spectrum and that was the Jews actually saw the sea, the ocean as a place of chaos destruction and death so in the uh, telling of the creation account in Genesis but also later in the prophets, we have it in Job, we also have it in Psalms, you have this picture of the primordial chaos waters that are covering the earth, and from them, God begins to bring life out of destruction. He begins to bring order out of chaos, Uh, and this is seen through many passages in Scripture, particularly in the book of Job. Then later on in Genesis uh, chapter 7, when we have the flood story, it's a reversal of creation. We have the waters of judgment that cover the earth once again. All life is wiped out except for seven souls. And Noah and his family reemerge, right, with an earth that has been cleansed in judgment. And so there you have the waters of judgment, but it brings cleansing, and the earth uh, is a new creation that's renewed. 
Again, the Red Sea is a mixed picture. Israel goes through, and they are cleansed and dedicated to Yahweh, whereas the Egyptians go through the water, and the water engulfs them in an act of judgment. And this is the way it's always seen in Scripture. This is God's hand of judgment coming down upon the Egyptians. Uh, here's another one that I, I don't think we make the connection here, but think about the story of Jonah. In the story of Jonah, in the Hebrew telling of it, you have a giant sea creature that saves the prophet from the chaotic, destructive seas. Like in our mind, as you know, West Coasters especially, where, I mean, California is just like a beach culture. I grew up in Orange County next to Surf City, Huntington Beach. I mean, this is like the exact opposite of how we think about the ocean. The ocean is a place to play, is a place to enjoy. And like in our, in our mind, you know, like Jonah gets thrown into the water. It's like, he's going to be fine. You know, and then all of a sudden, like, Jaws comes, you know, and like, and you're like, oh my gosh, Jonah's dead. But in the Hebrew telling, it's like inverted. Like, no, the, the water is like the monster. And this creature that's created by God saves the prophet and rescues him from the chaotic seas. And we're like, wait, what? Like, no, water's fun. It's okay. It's safe. Like, he's going to be fine. Does he know how to swim? He'll be fine, right? And so in Hebrew understanding, again, the sea is a place where judgment comes out of in, in a Hebrew telling and a Near Eastern telling of the cosmology of the world they believe that there was the chaos monster or the Leviathan that lived in the depths of the sea and he was almost like the, the keeper of the seas and he was the one that brought chaos and destruction upon the world and God was the one who brought out the dry land and made a safe place for humanity and for the world to exist and so these quickly are the biblical metaphors of water. We have life, we have cleansing for dedication, but we also have judgment and death. Now, when we come to the New Testament, the main picture of water that is used is in terms of baptism. Uh, and there's just water baptism, and then there's also the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This morning, I just want to talk about baptism as we're heading into um, Resurrection Sunday, Easter week. So, you guys remember the story, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he starts preaching a baptism of repentance for sin. And this is really significant in Israel's story, because though baptism was common for Israelites, it was only applied to pagans. It was only applied to Gentiles, to those who were outside of the covenant of God. And the picture was, is that these people need to be cleansed from their pagan ways in order to be dedicated to Yahweh. But a Jew would never think that they needed to be cleansed from sin and be redeemed to Yahweh. They're like, no, we, we, we're God's people. We keep the commands. We're the people that are in. And yet it's significant. John comes on the scene and he's saying the exact opposite. Don't rely on all that stuff. No, you need to be cleanse from your sin and you need to be rededicated to Yahweh and it's no accident that John is doing this baptism at the very place that Israel crossed under Joshua he takes him back to that same place and so what he's saying to Israel is we need to go back we need to go back to this point and we need to rededicate ourselves to God so that we can enter into the, the promises of God, the land of promise. And so it's like this, this picture to Israel that he's out there and he's saying, we need to go back, we need to be re 
We need to be washed again, and we need to be rededicated to Yahweh. John speaks of Israel repenting, turning around, turning back to Yahweh, being cleansed, dedicated, and prepared for the work that Yahweh will do. Remember, that's who John is. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for our God. And so this is what John sees himself as doing, is making a straight path, making a people that, that Yahweh can just step into and bring those people into his mission to the world. Now, this is what John's doing, and Jesus is going to come on the scene, and he's going to radically reinterpret and forever change the understanding of baptism, and he's actually going to bring all of these biblical metaphors of water together. So, Jesus comes along one day, and he insists that John baptize him. You guys probably know the story. Uh, They have this small argument about how John thinks that Jesus should actually baptize him, and they go back and forth, and Jesus wins, of course, because he's the Son of God. And so, right? John baptizes Jesus, and, and if you're a Christian, you're reading it, you already know, okay, well, this is a baptism of sin and repentance. Jesus doesn't have sin, so what's going on here? Well, it tells us when Jesus comes up out of the water, something radical happens, something totally different happens. It says, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. Remember, we talked about this a number of weeks ago when we were talking about the life of Jesus, that there are a few times in the prophets, well, there's one time in particular where Isaiah says, Lord, would you tear open the heavens and would you come down? Lord, would you rend the veil that is between heaven and earth? As heaven and earth were separated at the fall of man, Yahweh, would you reunite heaven and earth? Would you fulfill your promises? And it's interesting that when Jesus is baptized, this is the language that is used. Heaven and earth, that veil that's between them is being torn open, we're told. And the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. So at Jesus' baptism, the divide of heaven and earth is torn open, the Spirit is poured out on Jesus, and the Father speaks his word of love and affirmation over him. Now, there is a lot going on in Jesus' baptism. His anointing with the Spirit for his work of ministry, his taking up the role and mantle of Israel, and we talked about this a number of weeks ago. You can look at uh, or listen to our The Story of God series on Jesus, all that's in there. Um, but for the sake of time and our subject, we're just going to actually pass over these things this morning. And again, we're going to talk about these water, uh, water metaphors. So we don't necessarily see the tying in of the water themes here, but Jesus' baptism is actually a foreshadow of his atoning death, burial, and resurrection. And this is what will bring ultimate glory to the Father, the Spirit into and upon the world, and will tear open the divide of heaven and earth. So later in the narrative of Jesus, the Gospels record two times that Jesus refers to a different baptism or another baptism that he will undergo. And Jesus implies that this is a baptism of judgment and death. So listen to this. In the first instance, there's this incredible story of James and John, uh, disciples of Jesus, and they're asking Jesus, you know, okay, we're going to Jerusalem, and so when you, you know, basically come in and kick the Romans' butts and kick, get rid of them and set up the Davidic kingdom, we would like to sit on your right and your left hand in your kingdom. We want to rule with you. And so Jesus responds, 
you, you actually don't know what you're asking. This is a big ask, what Jesus says to them. And then he says this. We think we know where Jesus is going, like, oh, this is a place of honor and all this. And, and he says, can you drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. And then again in Luke, Jesus says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. So Jesus begins to allude to his suffering, his death as a type of baptism. So how is Jesus' death a type of baptism? Well, at the cross, Jesus, as we know, is judged for the sins of the world. He takes the place, think about this, Jesus takes the place of Pharaoh. He takes the place of the oppressor. Jesus takes the place of the rebeller, the rebellious. He's not just taking the place of the righteous who have sought to do good, have sought to do righteous and justice and bring about God's shalom. He hasn't just died for the best of humanity, but in fact, he is taking the place of those who are sinning against others. He is taking the place of the oppressor, the rebellious, the transgressor and sinner. Jesus is judged, as it were, under the waters of the Red Sea like Pharaoh and his army, so that his people can come out to the other side safely. Washed and dedicated to Yahweh. For here's another, Jesus at the cross undergoes a kind of decreation where the waters cover him in judgment and he is separated from the Father who is life so that the world can reemerge clean, spotless, and pure. Listen to the words of Psalm 69. This is um, considered a messianic psalm, a psalm about Messiah. Just let's, I brought a couple verses together within the psalm. It's, so it says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am a worm calling out for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me from the deep waters. Do not let the flood waters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. I mean, if, if water is not a judgment motif, I don't know what is in Scripture. And here in this Messianic Psalm, we have the Messiah speaking of his suffering and his judgment from people like a flood of great waters, like sinking down into this watery grave or pit. And he's calling out, he's looking for God, and God is nowhere to be found. Jesus' baptism, or excuse me, Jesus' death is a kind of baptism. A judgment that he undergoes 
for the sake of the world, that the world might come out of judgment, cleansed and dedicated to Yahweh. Now we know after Jesus' death and resurrection, he, he then commissions his disciples and his people. What does he say? He says, go out into all the world and proclaim my victory. Proclaim that I am Lord. And he says to them, baptize all who trust in me in my name. Baptize them. So the, the church then begins to, to follow this script, this story of Jesus, that we are being baptized into his name. And baptism, of course, becomes a rite of entry into the church. And so I say all this, but it really isn't even until Paul that all these things are fully tied together, and Paul shows what this actually means for us and our daily following of Jesus. So if you have a Bible, which you should, you're at church, right? Romans 6, 1 through 14, let's read it together. Romans 6, 1 through 14. So Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. I love whenever the scripture says these words, in order that. Like, it just, like, plain and simple, this is the reason. Don't miss this. This is the purpose. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death, a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again, for death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for doing what is right. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." So Paul tells us we were baptized into Jesus' death, buried with him in baptism, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So our Christian understanding of baptism as a sacred ritualistic act of identifying with Jesus' death, dying his death, being raised in his resurrection, comes from Paul. Paul is the one that really developed this, really thought through the implications of Jesus' own baptism. But Paul doesn't simply stop at this idea of it's just a ritual. No, Paul goes back into the life of Jesus, right? He says baptism 
isn't just a physical act. It represents a greater reality. So baptism is not just an act or sacrament to fulfill, but, Paul says, a life to live. My life of sin, my life of selfishness, my life of self-governance has been put to death and buried with Jesus in his death and burial. And the life I am now living, I live not for me, but for Jesus. It's so similar to what, God, uh, what Paul is saying in Galatians 2.20, right? I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith or trust in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or he says in Colossians, my life is hidden in Christ. I'm not my own in Romans, right? This is all the same idea. Because Jesus loved me and gave himself for me, because he gave himself as my substitute on the cross, I live for him. I live the life that he lives. And now I live a life of, of serving others the same way that Jesus lived. I now walk under the newness of life or resurrection life because that's, he says, where Jesus is now. Jesus is living resurrection life, so also we who are his followers are to live that resurrection life. And so baptism then is about living in a whole new way. It's whole life participation with Jesus. And it's about operating and relating to God as insiders and not outsiders, as sons and daughters, not slaves, and under grace, not law. Now, I know that this is like incredibly packed, like with so much to talk about and so many implications, but I just want to leave us with a few of these. I purposely wanted to make this morning short, uh, and I want to make these just kind of like little snippets to take. Remember, a liturgy of the ordinary, a way to just implement the presence and the, and the um, the truths of scripture in our everyday life. So this is what I would like to see. Next time you take a shower, church. Why is that funny? You better be taking showers, right? <laughs> Next time you wash your hands, wash your food, go to the beach, go to the lake, whatever you might do, remember Jesus' baptism. How? Remember the waters of judgment that overwhelmed Jesus. Remember the sacrificial death that he died in your place so that you could be brought through judgment unharmed in order to be God's spirit-filled child and live the new life of God here and now. Jesus, of course, is the true and greater Jonah. I said, this is packed, so there, there's so much that we could do with here. I could teach for hours on these things. You guys know that. <laughs> Jesus is a true and greater Jonah who is cast into the sea of God's judgment so we pagan, sinning, and sinned against people can experience the calm of God's peace and come to glorify him. Remember that and think on that next time you interact with water. It's this incredible way that God can speak to us. I've been doing this thing in the mornings. How many of you guys have your morning coffee ritual? So mine is so complex that my wife does not even dare attempt to do it. And she tells me this often. When you're gone, I, I, don't have, I have to go somewhere else for coffee. So I have this ritual I do, and it's not spiritual. 
<laughs> uh, that's not what's going on. But I have actually made it into a spiritual ritual for myself. Uh, and as I am, and I'm, I'm really not trying to make this weird at all, like mystical. I'm just trying to make this practical. But as I am pouring my water into my coffee, I'm getting ready to drink this cup that, for me, it gives me energy, right? Starts my day. I am simultaneously thinking about what really gives me energy, what really gives me life and starts my day. It is the Spirit of God. And as much as I'm relying upon that cup of coffee, I cannot walk in resurrection life without the spirit of my God and without reliance upon him. And so I have made this into a liturgical ritual for myself. And as corny or as weird as that might sound, this is a time for me to connect with the Lord. As I do this very practical thing that, I'm excited, that I look forward to each morning, so also I want to look forward to meeting with the Lord, communing with him. You know, the psalmist would do this. He said, in the morning, Lord, I wait for the sun, for in the morning, I'm going to lay out, I'm going to meet with the Lord in the morning. I'm going to lay out my life. I'm going to lay out my day. Oh, Lord, in the morning, I will lift up my prayer to you. The psalmist had these things. Morning and evening, he had these rituals where he would commune with God. See, we can do this as well. And water can become a ritual for us, whether it's life-giving spirit, whether it is the cleansing that we need for the sin that we've committed, whether that is against our spouse, it's against our roommate, it's against our children, it's against a coworker. We need to be cleansed from that so that we can be rededicated to Yahweh, our God, and we can walk in the newness of life that day. And we have these everyday interactions with these biblical pictures we can engage with. Now here's another one. Jesus, you guys remember this one. I love this one. Jesus is like the fox and the fleas. You guys remember this story? It's one of my favorites. Jesus is like the fox and the fleas. Jesus is that fox who, or actually, let me back up a little bit. Jesus is the the ball of wool. There it is. So there's this Scottish parable about how a fox, I've told this a thousand times, so you guys can probably tell it better than me now. Uh, Sorry. But the fox in Scotland Highlands will go through the hedgerow and he will collect all the wool from the sheep that have scraped against the rocks and the thorns and all this. And he will collect a ball of wool in his mouth and he will go down to the freezing cold river and he will begin to walk into the river and as he does, all of his fleas that have infested his body for so long will begin to climb up his body and make their way towards this ball of wool because they're trying to get away from the freezing cold waters of judgment, might I uh, suggest to you they're, they're, they're making their way up and all of a sudden at the last moment the fox will dip underneath the water and that ball of wool that is flea ridden will be washed away Jesus is like that fox in a sense who is dipped under those arctic waters of judgment and then he reemerges so that all who are in him are clean and dedicated to Yahweh of course the picture in the scripture is that he is the spotless lamb of God who God allows all the evil of the whole world to be concentrated on him. And Jesus takes the weight of the world's evil upon himself and the judgment for that evil, and he is smitten by God there on the cross, judged for our sin so that the world can emerge clean. Think on that next time you interact with water. Jesus was immersed under the waters of judgment so we can be clean. So that's the first thing I want you to think about as you interact with water. 
The second thing I want you to think about is your own baptism into Christ. Now, maybe you've been water baptized, maybe you haven't. Um, we'd love to tell you more about that and, and perform that for you. But I want you to think upon your spiritual baptism into Christ. You are baptized, Scripture Paul says, into his death, burial, and resurrection. So what does that mean to be baptized into Christ, his death, his burial, and resurrection? First and foremost, I think it means this, that just as the Father pronounced over Jesus, you are mine, I love you, and I am pleased with you, so God also speaks over all those who are baptized into Christ. If you're familiar with maybe a Presbyterian, uh, paedo-baptist understanding of baptism, you guys know what that means, paedo-baptism? Being baptized when you're a baby or a child? Right, so we, we believe in baptism upon confession. We think that that's more the, the, um, the idea that happens in the book of Acts. But there are people that believe in pedo-baptism, and this is a beautiful thing. I really, I love this. And if I could go back, I, I might pedo-baptize my kids. I don't know. Don't judge me. Um, but what they believe in pedo-baptism is this idea here that the baby is baptized, and before it has done any good, any righteousness, anything to deserve love or acceptance, the baby has this word spoken over it already. You are my beloved child. I am pleased with you. You belong to me. There's something so powerful about that. And there is something so significant about that in the message of the gospel is before we do any works of righteousness that come from faith, that we have this new identity through Jesus Christ, that we are dearly loved children of God, not by works of righteousness that we have done, nothing that we have earned, but just like a father with his own children, I love you because you're mine, because you belong to me. You are precious in my sight. And this is what our baptism speaks of. So if we are in Christ We are God's true children, and we have the same love from the Father that Jesus had. He says, I love you. You are mine. I am proud of you. I'm pleased with you. You don't have to earn my affection. You don't have to earn my protection, my care. It is given to you. I believe that it is absolutely vital as a Christian that in order to live the resurrection newness of life that Jesus purchased for us, you must begin identifying yourself first and foremost as a beloved child of God, and your identity in Christ must come before any activity in Christ. This has become one of my favorite quotes, but Brennan Manning once said this, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. And this is true for those who are in Christ. Every other identity, every other hat you have to wear is secondary to the fact that you, are, you belong to God, you are loved by him, and he is proud of you. Anything that comes into competition with this identity is a lie and an imposter. It's a lying voice trying to get you to doubt your Abba, to doubt his love, that he created you, redeemed you, and wants to radically bless you and make you a blessing to others. So think of your own baptism in Christ and think of that new identity. And then last, walk in the newness of life. Walk in resurrection life. So what if you used 
water as a daily liturgy to bring you each day to that recommitment and rededication. This understanding, I have died with Christ, I have been buried with him, and I have been raised with him now in order to live the new resurrection life in Jesus. What would our lives look like if we actually made that a practice? You know that corny saying, you are not what you think you are, but what you think you are? It is really true. And again, Tish Harrison Warren, the kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. To come to this practice each day, of remembering Jesus' death for us, remembering the judgment that he underwent, and then remembering what that means for us, that we have a new identity in Christ, and therefore we have a new privileged calling, and that is to walk in the newness of life, to live out the, the Jesus way of living. Others first, the kingdom of God before and far above the kingdom of self, the kingdom of God before, and far above the kingdom of America, or whatever it might be. And so church, I, I just, I recommend this liturgy to you, that as you go home, as you finish your day today, and you begin your day tomorrow, that you would practice a liturgy of water, and you would allow these symbols and metaphors to speak to you, allow the Father to speak to you, and to form and shape your life into the way of Jesus. So Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us a world that is alive with your power and your presence, a life, uh, Lord, that we can commune with you Everywhere we go, Lord, that we can see, Lord, um, even as Peter said, as he probably looked out on the fields, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, it lasts forever. He would compare and contrast the brevity of life to the eternal promises that you have made to us. Lord, we pray, God, that we would be a people that practice scripture in everyday ways that open our hearts and our minds, Lord, to the ordinary ways, Lord, that you want to touch our hearts, that you want to shape and redirect our lives to be Jesus people, to be kingdom people. And we pray, Lord, that we would be aware. Holy Spirit, tune our hearts into your moving and your working in everyday and ordinary ways, we pray. And Lord, I pray, Lord, for anyone here, Lord, who has not experienced Jesus' sacrificial, life-giving sacrifice and death for them. Lord, that their hearts would be touched this morning. They would come to know, Lord, that whatever is in the past can be forgiven, can be washed away. They can be renewed and cleansed. They can be, have that guilt and that shame buried. Like the prophet said, Lord, that you will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Lord, would it be so for that individual this morning? And when they come to know the life-giving identity that we are offered in Christ 
And would they walk in the newness of life? Amen.